Brad Klein here for TurfNet Renovation Report. Our guest uh, today is uh, Nick Mazzella. Nick is uh, the owner of the Mazzella Partnership and uh, works as essentially a uh, coordinator consultant for golf course renovation projects. And um, do you do new projects as well, Nick? Yeah, I've actually got uh, three that I'm working on right now, um, which is odd to say. It's been some years since uh, I think anybody could say they were working on three three new golf course construction projects, but that's a sign of the times, I guess. Um, so before we get started, let me just mention that I want to thank our sponsors, uh, Golf Preservations, the Andersons, and Capillary Flow. So, uh, Nick, uh, you were saying it's unusual to have uh, three new projects. Uh, it's a busy market for you guys, isn't it, these days? It, it, it sure has been. It seems, I, I would say that uh, renovation projects are still you know, the bread and butter of, of what we do. Um, but given kind of the, the economy and the surging golf popularity here in the last few years since COVID, I have had uh, pretty good fortune to be involved with some new construction projects as well. So um, they're all kind of Southeast regional things. Um, my business tends to focus in the Southeast region, but I have clients uh, across the country as well. So so tell us first how you got into this, and then um, we'll, we'll follow up from there. But how did you become, nobody starts as a consultant uh, on renovation <laughs> reports. No, and and uh, I guess I started, um, my degree is in landscape architecture, went to Penn State, uh, graduated in 1997. I uh, started my, my golf career kind of on the engineering and permitting side in Williamsburg, Virginia and uh, developed, kind of really started to understand what it meant to, to build and renovate golf courses and all the different hands that are in the pot from a jurisdictional perspective and how to navigate that. Um, after a few years of that, I spent basically the next 20 years uh, working for two different golf course construction companies, uh, Frontier Construction out of Pittsburgh and uh, Aspen Corporation out of West Virginia. And uh, I was a project manager and business manager, had really great experiences for those with those two companies. Um, I had originally started my career thinking I wanted to be a golf course architect, um, but quickly fell in love with with the construction side and, and the business management side of, of contracting. So uh, fast forward to about five years ago, um, kind of said to myself as halfway through my professional career, is this you know, how I want to end. Do I want to, do I want to finish my career as a, as a golf course contractor or is there something new to try? Um, and I just felt like there was another seat for me at the table. So uh, I confided in a few people who I had, who I had really started, started to, to grow a great relationship one uh, with the first was Keith Wood over at Quail Hollow Club. Um, I confided in Keith that I was thinking about doing this. And he said, you know, I think it's a great idea. I think, um, I think you'll be successful and I think you should go out and, and take a shot at it. So uh, with Keith's kind of encouragement, I did that. I founded the Mozilla Partnership in 2018. And uh, basically, I am a independent third-party project manager now. So um, first question I have is, why would someone hire a third-party project manager if you've got an architect and you've got a superintendent? Uh, on the job already, and let's just add to that someone you trust, superintendent, who uh, you have faith. Yeah, for sure. I mean, 
there are a lot of clubs and clients who don't need somebody like me, and that's completely fine. I understand that I'm not uh, here to serve everybody in the golf industry, but uh, there are some projects and some clients that that do require an extra set of hands, and I feel like I'm a good match for them. I think really you really notice the difference in somebody like me with when you come into a project that's very complex and has several disciplines involved. So it's not just a golf course architect, but if, if an owner's got to hire a golf course architect, an irrigation consultant, a civil engineer, a wetland scientist, and there's seven different people that they need to build their team, that's a daunting task for nobody on the team wants that responsibility, uh, nor does necessarily a general manager or a golf course superintendent have the experience that it takes to assemble that team. So really when you get, the more complex the projects there are, the more value you see in, in an independent project manager. Uh, do you find also that uh, sometimes it benefits a superintendent who's, uh, you know, who's keeping the golf course open and they're phasing in the work as opposed to a total shutdown? Is that a, a, an additional factor? Uh, always, yeah. I mean, I think nobody knows the property better than a golf course superintendent. So um, I'm always going to follow their lead when it comes to site logistics, um, kind of intricacies of moving about the site different microclimates on the site, no one's going to get that better than they are. And those are all going to factor into construction and renovation decisions. So I have a good synthesis with, with golf course superintendents where they know the property and I know the process. And together, you can, you can be prepared and stay ahead of some of the challenges you might face um, if you didn't have such a well-rounded approach. What's your sense of uh, how different the renovation uh, scope of work tends to be today compared to say 20 years ago or 25 years ago? Yeah, I think, I don't know. go ahead. Oh, I'm just saying, it just seems like uh, I see a lot of big projects with a lot of big uh, dollar figures attached to them that nobody ever imagined uh, 25 yeah. years ago. It's funny. I, I always I tell a lot of people that the story that I've seen over the 25 years that I've been in the business is big projects used to kind of be handled by one shop, right? You'd have a, a big name architect and they'd have an office full of people somewhere and they'd be cranking out greens details and construction specifications and bid forms. And it was a very conventional architect contractor type of relationship. Uh, an architect club relationship. Now it seems to me the busiest architects in the game are on dozers and they're in excavators. Um, they don't have teams of people back in an office somewhere to facilitate contract administration. You know, architects these days don't want to be burdened by a contractor with an invoice and three change orders when they come to make a site visit, um, which has been very fortunate for me because my business fills that niche where an architect doesn't have to do so much of the administrative things, I can do that directly for the club and it relieves the architect of that responsibility. So that's been the change in my opinion. I don't know that the scope of work is any different. I mean, we're still renovating greens, tees and bunkers and installing irrigation systems, but the manner in which it happens is drastically different than it was 25 years ago. Yeah, I can think, it's funny, I've never thought of that as a factor, but I can think of half a dozen shops right off the top of my head that used to have 20 people with four offices across the country and now they're down. <laughs> right. They've got four staffers and um yeah and, and half the stuff. And now, is just now it's, 
Yeah. And there are architects now who are, you know, very big names who, uh, you know, they, it's hard to get them during the day because they're shaping. And that's just the nature of the way the business gets done these days. Well, there's also a cost that has changed too, hasn't there been in terms of irrigation systems and particularly since COVID? And could you talk a little bit about the start about that and to what extent um, that that's changed uh, the the industry? Or yeah, that that's been a, that's been a big change. Um, COVID. So uh, right about the time COVID um, started, the pandemic started. I was kind of midway through a new. Um, a renovation project at PGA National then in Palm Beach Gardens, where the the new owners of the resort had hired me to help them manage a $25 million capital improvement project to the resorts, the four golf courses on property there. So um, some of the courses needed a little bit of work and some needed a total overhaul. And I was working closely with the then director of agronomy there, Jeremiah Lockhart. And, um, you know, we kind of systematically looked at each golf course and decided, you know, what does this one need and what, you know, who do we need to, to pull it together? So um, halfway through one of the major renovations there on the old Squire course, which became now the match and the staple was designed by Andy Staples, um, is when COVID hit and it slowed everything down. Um, permitting was Permitting was difficult in Palm Beach County and Palm Beach Gardens to begin with, but add the complexity of a, of a pandemic and it got infinitely harder and infinitely more expensive. Uh, we ended up pushing that project back a year. So mm -hmm. all the costs had obviously, you know, spiked. Um, but it seemed like the one, if I could put my finger on the one component that's become for me and what I've seen um, the hardest to, to get cost control for and availability has been sod. Sod has been the one that, um, yes. you know, is consistently, yeah, we're, we're, I've got several projects right now in 2025 that are, you know, making a concerted effort to lock down sod because it's going to be an issue. And uh, is there a particular reason for that? I mean, obviously, um, when you're doing a major renovation, you're trying to, uh, what's the word? Um, you don't want a lot of open soil for the, because of rain and washouts, so you're trying to expedite work. Has, has the scope of the sod utilization increase yeah i think so because i think construction schedules have become more compressed i think there used to be a lot of more patience on a, on a membership's behalf to tolerate a, a renovation project that doesn't happen that way anymore um, we have several projects that have very very short windows uh, we're sprigging greens but that's it uh, in the southeast and everything else gets sodded working on a project um, up at Philadelphia Country Club right now with Jim Nagel and Ron Force of Force Design, Superintendent Mike McNulty and the contractors Mott and Golf, um, you know, where we did uh, nine holes and nine greens complexes in an incredibly compressed time frame. Um, and they all had to be seated right away, but it left us time to, to do the rest of the work. But the window that the membership offers you to get this work done has just become uh, smaller and smaller. And as a result, sod becomes, you know, more and more valuable. And that's something that has to be contracted out a, more than a year ahead of time, doesn't it? Because you have to spec oh, yeah. it and make sure that it's going to be transmitted without delay. Oh yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a big time. And, um, you know, trucking, trucking becomes an issue. Um, the whole logistics 
side of the industry is probably not something that people will give much thought to. They just think, well, I've got my vendor right. um, and now I've got my material. Well, it's got to get to your site. Um, that's something that is affected in a big way by, by fluctuation in costs and fuel indexes. And I can't tell you the last time I received an, an invoice from a material vendor that didn't include a fuel surcharge somewhere. Um, these are all costs that you've got to be planning and expecting uh, to see on your job. I, I heard this adage at one point that the uh, cost of sand is determined by how many bridges the truck has to cross to get there. <laughs> well, there are uh, there are places that require gate fees. I mean, there's all kinds of costs that you could encounter. Um, but. Given those kind of logistical and supply issues, do you often is part of your work to uh, before anything before a shovel of dirt is turned? Uh, I assume you have to basically uh, examine the budget and see whether it's a realistic um, scope with uh, enough flexibility and and uh, contingency. Yeah, that that's kind of my biggest message to clubs that I'm working with right now for you know 2025 and beyond is. We've got to really be cognizant of what potential material cost increases, year-over-year -year cost increases are going to be, and and proper contingencies. Um, you just it, it's it's to the point where you almost need to figure you know ten percent a year uh, on some of this stuff because it's inevitable. And you know a budget that you thought was going to go pretty far five years from now doesn't go quite as far. Um, so trying to make everybody understand that even here we are in 2023, um, costs are expensive, but they're, they're continuing to rise. I, I really haven't seen any stabilization of any of the construction related costs. Irrigation seems to be particularly uh, prone to um, uh, inflationary pressures. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that, uh, particularly the move with HDPE and availability of pipe and shipping and so on? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm probably not the, the best to speak on it, but I, I mean, I know that I've seen costs continue to rise on the irrigation side. Um, it's it's routine. Can, when, I, when I meet with a client now and we talk about doing a new 18-hole irrigation system uh, with a pump station, the placeholder is three million bucks. You know, that's kind of where we start uh, right. we scale up or down from there but um you know i don't know i honestly don't know the last time i was involved with a new irrigation system that was pvc uh, i'm talking to a client right now that's considering it um but it seems like everything has gone hdpe um you know and, and it's obviously petroleum driven um there's a lot of factors there but I think the pipe availability has stabilized. You know, we were we used to be in a situation a year or two ago where we would talk about having order materials, you know, eight, 10 months ahead of when we needed them. That has relaxed um, a lot. In fact, I'm working with the Peninsula Club up on Lake Norman in Charlotte right now with the Bow Welling uh, project and, and the superintendent there, um, Nick McLennan. You know, we've talked extensively about how far in advance we needed to order this stuff. And there was a time where we were thinking eight months ago that we needed to order pipe. And then turns out we ended up ordering drainage pipe, you know, two, three weeks before we needed it. So now the vendor was prepared. They knew that we were going to be coming to them with that order. Um, but it, it was relaxing to know that uh, we, we weren't quite under the pressure we thought we would be. 
Yeah, let's take a pause for a second. This is Brad Klein with the TurfNet Renovation Report. Uh, my guest today is Nick Mazzella, uh, the owner of uh, and principal of Mazzella Partnership. And I want to thank our sponsors, uh, Golf Preservations, the Andersons, and Capillary Flow. The capillary bunker system keeps bunker moisture at optimal levels to eliminate washouts, soil contamination, plugged ball lies, and other bunker maintenance and playability problems. The patented capillary bunker system not only rapidly drains rain from storms, but also moves moisture back up to the bunker sand through capillary action as needed during drier weather. Capillary bunkers last longer, average a three-year payback, and provide better, more consistent player experiences all with a 10-year performance guarantee. For more information, visit capillarybunkers.com. From fairway and greens drainage to full-scale renovation work, Golf Preservations can handle your project with ease and give you the peace of mind of knowing the professionals are caring for your valuable golf course assets. Since 2005, Golf Preservations has meticulously installed over 500 miles of drainage pipe on more than 300 golf courses nationwide, always keeping disruption of play to a minimum. Visit golfpreservations.com or call 606-499-2732 to speak with us about your next drainage or renovation project. Introducing Genesis RX, a line of comprehensive fertility and soil amendment solutions specifically designed for airification, construction, renovation, sodding, sprigging, and seeding. These blends represent the most comprehensive fertilizers the Andersons have ever produced, offering single product solutions designed to simplify fertility and save time in application. To learn more, visit andersonsplantnutrient.com slash turf. Uh, we are back with the TurfNet Renovation Report. Brad Klein here with our guest, Nick Mazzella of, of the Mazzella Partnership. And we are grateful for this conversation being brought to you by our sponsors uh, at Golf, Golf Preservations, the Andersons, and Capillary Flow. Um. Are there areas when when you're working with clubs? Do you find that more and more clubs are uh, buying the material and stockpiling themselves, as opposed to say relying upon the contractor to access it? How is that relationship working, and what is it you tell clients about the best way to proceed there? Yeah, I I think um, there's probably no simple rule, but if the club Ordering materials early and on behalf of the club is a great idea. And whenever I can have my clients do it, I encourage them to do it. Um, of course, it depends on the material and more importantly, depends on where you're going to store it and for how long. Right. So many of these clubs, especially the classic era, older, older types of clubs don't have the room that they need to store, you know, 10,000 feet of drainage pipe for a year and a half while they wait for a construction project. People don't want to see it. Um, and it becomes you know problematic so it's a it's a delicate balance to find the right time to buy um and where you can keep it but it's definitely something to consider um but i'd say probably half of my projects 
still allow contractors to buy materials and the other half uh, clients are buying them, buying materials direct. Now, uh, correct me if I'm wrong here, but if the uh, contractor uh, or the construction firm buys the material, they're going to mark it up basically, right? Even if they get it at a, at a discount so that there's that sum of profit that accrues to them that might otherwise, yeah, can you? Yeah, for sure. Obviously that's, that's part of their business model. Anything that flows through them, they're going to charge you a markup on. That's kind of one of my sales pitches to, to my clients is I can help them negotiate those same contractor pricing from the vendors um, so they can buy them, buy them directly. But um, you know, the contractors are, are smart guys uh, at the end of the day. Um, they're going to, they're going to alter their business model in such a way that they'll recapture, whether it's their unit costs or something, they can try to recapture what the lost markup on those materials would be. So, you know, it just, it's a matter of what makes the most sense. Um, if you've got a project that requires constant material deliveries every day, um, you, you kind of want the contractor to own that responsibility. You don't want to stop the project because the owner is short by, you know, 10 feet of, of, of pipe and uh, two four inch nineties and you can't fill the green up with, with gravel because you're waiting on a $10 fitting. Um, so, you know, there's, there are instances where it makes sense to have the contractor purchase those materials and paying the, paying the markup is, is okay. That's part of the service they're offering you. Uh, are you also seeing, you mentioned that uh, many of the architects who are busy these days, um, uh, are themselves on a dozer or excavator shaping. Uh, have you seen a big shift in that in terms of, and that must get a little complicated in terms of negotiating a contract because you're taking off part of the, used to be a shaping service by the, the Landscapes Unlimited and, and the McDonald and Sons of the world. Yeah, for sure. That's that's a huge difference, Brad. That That's kind of what I talked about before about, you know, just the the way that the industry is different now. Um, you know, I remember kind of when I started. You know, we would have to submit the resumes of our, our of our shapers and list which projects they had and what architects they worked for. And all the architects would call the other architects and ask if they've worked with this shaper and how did they do. And there's just so little of that anymore. Um, I don't know if the world is more connected because of social media or, or what, but it, it very rarely seems like you run across anybody in this business that hasn't already had some prior experience with someone. Um, certainly in the construction and, and renovation space. So it, it's a huge difference. I mean, it's just the way things happen and, and it absolutely affects the contractors. It affects them in multiple ways. I mean, you're basically taking all the artistry away from the contractor uh, and allowing them to kind of come in and, and work behind the architects and their shapers and just build features. At that point, if an architect's controlling a green subgrade and the finished grade and he's shaping the bunkers, really all that's left for the contractor to do is to drain it, uh, and prep it for grassing and grass it. Um, and that's a very different ask. You know, some of those shaping items and everything were very high margin um, portions of the project for contractors. So to see them have to, you know, let give up some of that control, um, you know, it's definitely changed the way contractors and architects work together. And at the end of the day, all of that affects the owner. Well, and also, obviously, they're engaged in, in demolition of features. So and excavating and mm -hmm. bulk, bulk earthwork. Um, 
so but it, it, it's it segments the project that's the challenge in it so you gotta have a contractor come in and strip greens and demo the greens then let the architect or shaper come in and establish finished grade or subgrade however they're going to do it then they've got to do that work then you've got to bring a contractor <laughs> back in to drain the greens um it just it it really segments the way the work has to be done um in the field which it can it can be managed um you know that's a big part of what i do is scheduling and, and working on schedules and budgets with clients to make sure we we don't have a situation on our hand where one party doesn't have anything to do because they're waiting on another party. Um, but it's, it's a matter of fact now, it's just the way all these projects are being done. Uh, does such an arrangement contribute to cost savings or cost, uh, ex, you know, additional expenses? How, how does that yeah. wash out in terms of um, budgets? I've, I've, I guess it's probably cost neutral. I haven't really seen a, an instance where it has cost anybody a lot more money. What it does do when an architect is shaping himself or an architect is providing their own shapers, it greatly reduces the amount of adjustments that need to be made in the field. Right. So if an architect is working with a shaper, they have a language, they're communicating. If you know, an architect comes out for a site visit and, and looks at three greens, chances are they're going to be pretty close or, or require very minor adjustments if it's his guy, if it's someone that he's been working with before. If it's a conventional old school kind of architect contractor relationship, well, I got this, you know, contractor says, I've got a shaper, you're going to love him. He's going to be great. He's done all kinds of work. He can do whatever you want him to do. Uh, and then the architect goes out there, gives instructions to the shaper, comes back 10 days later and doesn't like anything of what he's seen, um, then that gets expensive. So I think the neutrality of it is that there's a lot less kind of redos, if you will, in the field mm -hmm. because it's getting done right the first time, which if you go back to the discussion just a few minutes ago about the schedule, um, it's critical. I mean, you got to get it right the first time. I mean, there's just not as much time these days for a multitude of reasons for, for all of the, you know, kind of ambiguity that goes along with, with, with shaping. It's got to be done. It's got to be done quickly. It's got to be done right. Well, part of the, what contributes to the efficiency there is that instead of making a visit once a week or every two weeks, the architect or his or her right-hand person is on site most of the time. So there's someone delegated to watch and to make observations. And where I, I have to say, when I've seen this um, altered um, arrangement, it looks to me like the contractor and the superintendent and the, the, the architect team, they've sort of speak the same language. They've done this before. They've done it 20 times. And so they know uh, the contractor is going to basically do the demo, open up the hole, shaper comes in kind of rough finishes then they talk about it and one of them gets on a you know they're almost interchangeable equipment um so um, yeah very much I, i've seen it like i mentioned at the peninsula club there with bo welling and his uh shaper joe titzer Th those guys are really on the same page dialogue wise they've got a process mm -hmm. uh joe will shape something he's got a drone he can fly the drone down the center line send right. a file to bo, bo can you know make adjustments it's it's really kind of as, as far away from it used to be 20 years ago as possible. Yeah. Given that, um, how many architects are using their own 
or trying to get their own shapers. Is there a, a how should I put this? Is there a shortage of, quali of highly qualified shapers in the industry? Or uh, I haven't been on a project in the last 10 years that really was missing a strong shaper. I think I think there's probably more now than there was. I think that pool is a little deeper. Um, I think the, the equipment has changed a little bit. I mean, I think bunker shaping with mini excavators and power tilt attachments have really kind of changed things yeah. for the better. It allows people to be more uh, quickly, move more quickly and efficiently inside a bunker. Um, so I do think, I, I, don't, I don't think there's any shortage of them. Um, I think there's probably a whole host of people out there right now that are incredible shapers that you've, that none of us have, have heard of um, that are just kind of doing their own thing. Um, this, I'm working on a new construction project outside of Columbia, South Carolina called Broom Sedge. Mm -hmm. uh, Kyle Francis is the golf course architect and he's working with a gentleman named Mike Kaprowski. Um, Mike is kind of the visionary behind the property and um, he's a shaper as well. I mean, th this is a guy who probably five years ago just learned how to operate an excavator. Um, but if you've got an eye for it and you've got the time relatively small amount of time it takes to invest to learn the machine uh you can make it happen so i think there's a lot of guys out there and girls who are able to make you know, just get in the machine and get it done um and they're, they're finding a way to do it and and it's i think the, the the pool of qualified shapers is probably deeper if anything well, one big difference, I mean, when I started writing reviews of golf courses in the, uh, I guess, late 80s now, God, a long time ago, uh, and they were building basically through the 90s, one course a day or opening a course a day, I always got the sense that the process was so um, driven by the contractor that you had, if you were an architect, you basically had to teach the shaper how to do your style because they were building the last five courses that they were running. And so you didn't have as much individuality because you were stamping out these courses at such a prodigious kind of industrial Ford model rate, Ford, the mm -hmm. Fordist, Fordist model of production, whereas now it seems to be a lot more boutique, customized in a style that's specific to the designer. Um, Absolutely. I mean, that's a great kind of analogy. Boutique is the perfect world word, but here's where I, you know, kind of, go back to my contractor days and and I try to be uh, as Switzerland as I can with regards to, you know, owners and architects and contractors, because at the end of the day, they all have to work together to get the best possible products um, and, and successful project. And I don't know ever of a great golf course renovation or construction project that happened with a bad contractor. Right. And oftentimes the contractors are the guys and girls who hold the whole thing together. Um, they don't get any of the recognition. And most of the time, they're okay with that. Um, but I've seen a lot of really great, good architects look great because of a good contractor. And if you don't get the finished work right, and there are so many things, no matter how much time and effort you put into planning, there are going to be things that someone didn't think of. And more often than not, it's the contractor who's got to pick up those pieces. Right. And when you've got the right one and they're committed to the project, it makes everybody look good. Um, so the contractors, just the way the architecture business has changed, the, the contracting industry has changed too. I mean, you've got to be 
you know, more in tune with, with design language. Um, you've got to be quick on your feet. Everybody's busy. Labor's incredibly difficult to come by. Um, and it's a gypsy lifestyle. I mean, I've always said that the contracting side of the business has got to be the hardest hardest side of the construction business. Now, I've never been a golf course superintendent, so I can't comment on that, but I'm sure, um, you know, they've, they, they face their own, their own challenges for sure. Um, but on the construction side, it's, it's a thankless business for, for contractors. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I'm in the Northeast a lot, although I, I have work all over the country now too, but, um, one of the things I noticed in the, uh, in the Northeast with a typical project, major renovation, It'll start, say, August 1st, and the crews tend to be from a temperate climate, so they're they're used to working in, in the heat, and then as soon as the temperature starts dropping, you know, first of all, they're wearing gloves at 70 degrees, so when it's 45 degrees, and you don't get daylight till 8 in the morning, and it That's never right. gets above 50 degrees, the pace of work just crawls to a halt. So I, I always had this I always have this view that basically the attention span and the efficiency of a crew is about three months. And after that, mm. it starts to really lag. Uh, that's part of the itinerant quality of the work. And, you know, they, they kind of get to move on. So uh, it, I, I agree with you that there's a, there's a rhythm, a dynamic, and a skill set to the construction management side that is that nobody knows about outside of, you know, 300 of us. Uh, right. Plus the superintendents. Nobody ever yeah. writes about it. Nobody ever writes. No, you're, you're absolutely right. And that's, that's the world I live in. The nuances of, you know, construction management through, through a golf course construction project. I don't know, you know, I'm not a vertical construction guy. I couldn't advise you on, you know, buildings and, and how to navigate that process, but the nuances that go along with golf course construction project planning, budgeting, scheduling, that's, that's the world I live in. And the one good thing about, you know, all these projects being pushed out so far to 25 and 26, it gives you a lot of time to plan. Mm -hmm. And with proper planning, you can do a lot of things that you didn't get to do. You know, you used to get, as a contractor, we used to get, you know, bid packages from, from architects six months before the construction project started. Now we get them three years. But those three years give you a lot of opportunities to, to refine things. In fact, I've got several projects now that we're going to, um, you know, to bid with a, with a construction package that's only 75 or 80% complete. Mm -hmm. uh, we want to find a partner, a contracting partner who's interested in the job, who has the resources, who's not committed. And then we want to go to the last 25, 30% with the contractor we want to narrow that plan down and say what makes the most sense for you guys how do you how do you want to do this do you want us to handle this or you to handle this or what are the value engineering opportunities you know oftentimes now you're hiring a contractor before you've got permits so you don't know what curveball the, the jurisdictions are going to bring to you with erosion control stormwater um you know those are things that you've got to secure a contractor before you even get to yeah. So building in the contingencies and, and bringing on a contractor early that you can work, you know, take that last, like I said, 25% and, and walk in lockstep with them towards the start of the project. You're going to be a lot better off than we were 20 years ago when you didn't know who showed up on the job. Um, and, and the first two weeks were kind of like, a, you know, we'll feel it out and see how the project goes. Now, 
you know, you hit the ground running. Everybody knows exactly what they're doing because we've had two years to plan for. Then your maps are aligned. You know, you've got the right, right. Uh, topography. You've got your truck permits. And, and this, you've got, you got your members out of the way, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. And the golf course superintendent, I mean, they're in such a better position to, to they know this is coming. We're not going to surprise them. There are things they can do proactively two yeah. years before a construction project that will save the club money. And, you know, we'll start thinking about those things. Um, you know, how we're going to get on the site. What do we need to do ahead of time? Are there changes to your, to your shop? Uh, area that we can look at now that will make construction more efficient and leave you when we're done with a better shop. Well, um, I, same yeah. thing, mm -hmm. you know, a, a lot of uh, clubs I work with that are testing new grass types. Now you've got two years to test it out. You want to test, um, you know, a bunker construction method. Let's put one in. We've got time. You know, these are all things that the golf course super that falls on the superintendent because mm -hmm. you can plan and hire contractors playing with architects all you want, but they're not hitting, they're not on your property for two years until your project starts. Your superintendent's there every day. I mean, if there's anybody who's going to find it in the dirt before you start, it's a superintendent. And by, you know, giving them the heads up of this is what's coming. This is what we should look at. They're probably the person who can make the most significant impact on a renovation before the renovation. Yeah, I mean, everything from sand selection to fairway expansions Absolutely. And, and getting tree work done. I, I'll just give you one example. I'm, I'm involved up at the Worcester Country Club under Gil Hands uh, with Superintendent Adam Moore. And when work started, uh, I think it was August, right around the end of July, August 1st, the golf course was in absolutely perfect shape. And his justification was, well, I'm going to need sod. And so I'm going to. Pick, <laughs> well, that's great. I'm going to. Wonder. I'm going to. I'm going to pick and choose the sodded areas that are perfectly shaped from tees or fairway, you know, beginnings, and move them. And it and the fairways expansion, fairway expansions had been done. All the forward tees had been put in the year before. The tree work, for the most part, was done. Uh, so now the work could go unimpeded, rather than finding out. Oh, oh, oh I didn't realize that the, these greens expansions are going to require more tree management on the shaded areas. So. Oh. Yeah, that's a that's a great point. I mean, there there's such an opportunity there, and I, I that'd be the first time I heard of anyone maintaining it, you know, to reuse the sod. But that's a great idea. I mean, tre trees are probably the single greatest thing to get done before the renovation. Yeah, um, that's that's a huge help. It takes time during the renovation. It's messy. Um, you know, you want to have all your trees down and out of the way before you start your renovation if you can. So. That's that's a big one. But yeah, um, forward tees, I mean, infrastructure projects, if you know that there's, you know, you have problems on your on your golf course between now and then, like, let's let's get them fixed before we start the construction project. If there's infrastructure, especially that we're tying into. Um, let's get it knocked out and pump stations, Same thing. You know, there's no you don't need to wait for your new irrigation system during the renovation. To get, if you're getting a new pump station, you can absolutely get that ahead of time. Mm -hmm. um, so these are all things that, and that's a big long lead item right there. Um, you know, some pump stations are 28, 30, 30 weeks out. I mean, these are, these are long leads. So um, you need to start thinking about that stuff pretty quickly. Does that lead to uh, cost efficiencies or does it lead to work efficiencies or both? I mean, is this one way to simplify, reduce the cost if that's one of your concerns? 
yeah, I mean, it's definitely a cost reduction. Your, your club's got to be on board with it from a cash flow perspective, obviously. Um, and there's that side of things. But yeah, I mean, if we're talking about rising costs and there's things we can do right now and save, you know, 10 or 15%, then let's get them done. Mm -hmm. Well, also, when you, if you get your tree work done, that means you're going to have enough uh, of a growing environment for your expanded fairways and, and presumably greens. So that, right. that's something that I think a lot of clubs underestimate until it's a little late in the day. So. Yeah. yeah. And I think, you know, there are some things you can do during construction to offset costs. We've oftentimes we have, um, you know, clubs that want to save their bunker sand, you know, so when we're, we're doing demo of a bunker, we'll save that sand, whether it can be used as, as top dressing somewhere, or there's right. some areas that we can use it. I mean, let's plan all of that out ahead of time. Let's not waste anything that we, we currently have. Mm -hmm. um, that's the first, I think, step in, you know, cost effectiveness is not wasting anything. So, yeah. um, you know, we want to, we want to be efficient there as much as we can. Yeah. Do you get involved with members and with club politics in terms of votes or, um, you know, that, that whole side of renovation? Never by choice. Yeah. <laughs> I have, uh, I have found myself in those, uh, situations, um, over the past five years as a consultant, but, um, again, you know, trying to try to stay neutral on all that. I just, my, my existence with my clients is to educate them. It's never to lead them right. in a certain direction. Um, I feel like they know what's best for them. They just don't know what all the considerations are. So you need to paint a complete picture to them, right. understand what their choices mean, um, give them examples of when things have worked and not worked. And then ultimately let them decide that for themselves. I mean, really, that starts at the club level. Um, I have a lot of great clients um, that I I never meet with anybody inside the clubhouse um, other than a general manager. Um, but there are a lot of clubs that are very efficient. They use their membership and their committees efficiently. Uh, John Selinski over at Charlotte Country Club and his interaction with his committees and board is amazing i mean every time i'm in the room with them i feel incredibly lucky to do it i love the way they work together there's a mutual respect um and i think that's the model for how it how it should be and anytime i'm invited into there i'm, I'm happy to attend but i don't i don't seek those uh th those occurrences out when they come to me i'm happy to be there but um i think it's up to the club to decide if they want that perspective yeah well, sometimes it's a little too easy to get dragged into uh, the naysayers and the um, the ones who uh, resent a shutdown and they want the golf course to remain open during play and you know they want white sand, all that stuff. So, oh yeah, there's there's no shortage of uh, a vocal minority when it comes to construction project. That project up at at Peninsula, um, you know, we've been for a year telling them that the golf course was going to shut down October second. Yep. which it did, but there was no visible activity on the driving range until October, you know, 16th. And they wanted to know for why those two weeks they couldn't be, you know, hitting balls. So, um, you know, there, there's a lot of uh, education that goes along with that. Um, and you just got to monitor, you know, the expectations, temper the expectations, just right. let everybody know early and often what's coming. Yep. Well, uh, 
I want to thank our guest today, Nick Nazella from the Nazella Partnership, and um, for um, being part of the TurfNet Renovation Report and our sponsors for this conversation and all the others we've been doing, Golf Preservations, the Andersons, and Capillary Flow. Nick, uh, thank you very much for your time, and um, we'll see you out there on another renovation, uh, another, uh, oh. renovation project. Sounds great, Brad. Thanks for having me.